Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today marks the celebration of Dia de los Muertos, or Day of the Dead. The holiday has Aztec origins, honoring ancestors and loved ones who've passed away. In Mexico, it's a joyful observance, uniting the dead with the living. Later this hour, we'll hear about the history and colorful traditions of Day of the Dead from the Consul General of Mexico in Atlanta, Javier Diaz de Leon. First, November is Native American Heritage Month, a time to celebrate the rich history, diverse cultures, traditions, and artwork of indigenous Americans. The Georgia Museum of Art at the University of Georgia has a new exhibition, Collective Impressions, Modern Native American Printmakers. Jeffrey Richard Mole curated the show. He joins me now via Zoom with Carl Davis, the executive director of Crow Shadow Institute of the Arts. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Please tell us why printmaking has been an essential form of expression for Native Americans and indigenous people for several generations now. Native American artists found in printmaking a medium for important artistic experimentation as an art form that lends itself to new avant-garde methods, modernist techniques, but it also was a pathway to social commentary for a lot of these artists who were looking to share an important message through the kind of wider circulation that multiples like prints can offer in sharing important social commentary around Native American experience in the United States, and especially to really take on the cultural assumptions around Native identity, confront the kind of stereotypical understandings of Indigenous culture in ways that 
were sometimes quite direct, but also sometimes involved humor and irony and, and satire to really, as I said, address crucial themes uh, around their, their cultural history and traditions. Carl, what can you tell us about the Crow Shadow Institute of the Arts? Crow Shadow was founded in 1992 by the painter James Lavador, uh, who was a Walla Walla native. And it has, since 2001, been producing and publishing limited edition lithography prints by contemporary native artists from across the country with a heavy influence of Columbia Plateau, Plains natives, and people from the South Southwest but we've worked with uh, artists from all over the country. Crow Shadow is, interestingly enough, the only uh, professional print publisher that's located on Native American Reservation in the United States. We're in Northeast Oregon on the Umatilla Indian Reservation. Mm. And how did Crow Shadow come to work with the Georgia Museum of Art for this show? So Jeffrey reached out. We do have a large permanent collection of prints that we've assembled through the publishing process. Each artist that comes to Crow Shadow through the publishing makes an edition or a series of editions, and we we hold one in in a permanent collection at Crow Shadow, and we lend that out to uh, museums and institutions. Of, and Jeffrey reached out asking to borrow a few of our prints for this exhibit, and I was very pleased and, and happy to to help with that. Who are some of the artists featured in this exhibition and what tribes do they represent? Well, one of the things that I wanted to do with this exhibition was to represent artists who have ancestral connections to the American Southeast, specifically to the land of Georgia and the place where the University of Georgia is located in in Athens, artists with Cherokee, Muscogee Creek, and Yuchi ancestry, uh, including artists like Kay Walkingstick and Yataka Fields, both of whom had residencies at, at Crow's Shadow uh, in years past, as well as other artists from elsewhere around the United States. Fritz Shoulder and T.C. Cannon are some of the more well-known names, as well as Joan Quixie Smith. These artists, as well as really earlier generations of artists like Awatsira and Oscar Howe and Gerald Naylor, these, these art help us kind of tell a larger story of how printmaking was adopted and adapted by these artists. And really the crucial role of places like Crow Shadow and Tamarind Institute in New Mexico today as places that sustain that practice in really, you know, wonderfully collaborative environments that is is central to the way prints are made in a a kind of workshop setting. Carl, you mentioned the Crow's co-founder, James Lavador. His work is featured in the show. How would you describe his prints? He really does respond to the landscape, but in a very intuitive way. So a lot of his prints, I consider them embodied landscapes. They are abstracted approaches to his environment. Uh, so the the images in this exhibit are a reflection of that kind of in process of, of feeling the land or, or experiencing the land and, and having that come through his hand to the paper. But it's not an experienced landscape per se. It's not plein air kind of painting or print, but it is 
it is indicative or or evocative of the of the region that he's in. Mm. Will you take us through the different themes that the artists in this show address from disposition and exile to satirical depictions like Harry Fonseca's Rose and the Res Sisters? In crafting this exhibition, I thought it was important to present a, a larger chronology, right? This history of printmaking among Native American artists, but but pulling out themes like the ones that you've mentioned and helping us understand why printmaking was such a, a an important means of of artistic and social commentary, as I mentioned before. And so you have artists like Bobby C. Martin, who has this wonderful print called Emigrant Indians. Bobby is Muskogee Creek. So he's addressing the displacement of Native peoples from the Southeast to the Midwest and the Plains, places like Kansas and Oklahoma. The print is an overlay of multiple maps. One, a map of tribal peoples from the 18th, from 1836 were removed to Kansas. And then another one on top of that, a 1950s roadmap of Kansas published by Rand McNally. And this idea that that maps are a way of not just charting, but categorizing and, and placing people politically within boundaries is crucial to the work. But this notion that, as it says on the map, this map of emigrant Indians assumes that Native peoples had a choice in emigrating from the Southeast to places like Kansas and Oklahoma. And, and, and Martin is intentionally playing up that irony in the work to, to, to really question our understandings, our, our sort of prevailing traditional understandings of American and Native American history. You also have artists like Kay Walking Stick, uh, like Virginia Stroud, America Meredith, who are thinking about themes like gender and the role of of Native women as caretakers and stewards of Indigenous culture. Their works range from fairly kind of domestic or, or scenes of daily life to uh, scenes of, of rituals where women play a central role. And then uh, I think attitudes around the environment are really crucial to a lot of works here. And there's a wonderful work by Rick Bartow, who, another artist with a great connection to Crow's Shadow, and he once stated that, uh, he said, I'm just an artist that thinks that people and animals share the same bed. If the bed isn't comfortable for the animals, it's not going to be comfortable for us for long. And so this notion of interconnectedness between humans and, and non-human things and, and our planet, that is a theme that sort of resonates throughout the show and is part of this, again, this larger notion of printmaking as a space for collective and collaborative work for a, a process that is based on a, an interconnected movement of an artist to a printer and back and forth in that kind of atelier or workshop space. In what ways do these works of art in this show highlight the diversity among the tribes and indigenous people? Well, I think this is a wonderful collection of prints that Jeffrey's put together to really highlight an obstacle or a hurdle that that I face in working with public that might not understand that native people are people. <laughs> they are they are 
of now and making art of now. And so the diversity of the styles and subject matter, it highlights the idea that you say, like native people are not monolithic. They're living experiential lives and creating art of themselves and for themselves. It really does go beyond the kind of stereotypical ideas that people may have about native art and native people. And it, it, I think the work that's in the show really has a definite, there's thematic ideas that run throughout, but in the style and the approach that each of the artists have, they're very individual. And that I think is something really important to, to pull out of this, that an artist is making work first for themselves. And so how that relates to their lived lives, I think is the first idea that we should really focus on. Before acknowledging what tribe they're from. Well, I think it really is a first-person approach to art making that everyone, I think all artists have. They're, they are artists first. They're producing images or, or creating works that speak to themselves. And if there's a tribal influence or an affiliation that comes through the work, then, then so be it. But I think it, it is a person making that work, not a tribe making that work. And that I think is important to, to make that distinction. And you mentioned you know, our, our prevailing and our inherited histories of Native American culture that, you know, we, as we learn in, in school and has sort of been hand, handed down to us in so-called white culture, what is sometimes called settler culture, there is a, a history of, of Native American society, uh, art, that is very much dehumanizing. There is a de-individualization. These are not people, but they represent types. And there are artists in this show, like Fritz Scholder and his Indian portrait in Roma, where he is directly confronting these trees of photography of Native peoples from as far back as the 19th century, where Native peoples were not individuals, but they were they indicated a type and a race that was also that people thought at the time vanishing away and the humanity of of the individuals who are who have created these works for this exhibition as well as the humanity of the people who are portrayed within them i think is is just central to overturning that larger history of removing the individuality and the humanity of Native peoples that, you know, has happened for generations and generations. I was delighted to read about the poetry recordings that accompany this exhibition. Would you tell us more? Sure. In creating this exhibition and wanting to emphasize the collaborative nature of of printmaking as a process, we were also thinking more generally about, you know, what sorts of collaborations can we foster with the exhibition itself? And how can we embrace the spirit of collectivity and reciprocity um, that is so central to, to these works? And so we reached out to Leanne Howe, who is a professor here at the University of Georgia in our English department. She is also Choctaw. And she was one of the editors of the recent Norton Anthology of Native Nations Poetry. The book is called When the Light of the World Was Subdued, Our Songs Came Through. And she was co-editor of that volume with U.S. Poet Laureate Joy Harjo. And we reached out to Leanne and said, we'd love to find a way to integrate your work, this volume, 
with the exhibition. And what she and her colleagues in English and creative writing did was they they asked six graduate students at the University of Georgia to read six poems from that anthology representing various moments in oral and written history, as well as various tribes. Um, they recorded those poems to, to become an audio guide that visitors will have access to in the galleries, each poem being paired with a work that is relevant in theme or content. So Joy Harjo's poem, She Had Some Horses, can be heard alongside Virginia Stroud's print of children on horseback and so on. And I, it, I think it's just a wonderful way that expands the, the visitor's experience in the gallery of having this both audio and visual encounter with the works on the walls and the poems and the recordings. But it also speaks to the, the interrelationships among oral and written and visual traditions within Native American culture more broadly. And I saw there will be a roundtable conversation on November 11th, prints and poetry. What topics will be included in that discussion? Well, that's a discussion for us to really delve more deeply into the kinds of ideas that, that I mentioned around, you know, how are oral and, and written traditions like poetry, visual traditions like the prints and the show related? How can we think about them together? And how did this project come about? I mean, give, giving Leanne an opportunity to share not only about this incredible anthology that she was a part of, but also, you know, how she was thinking about these relationships between poems in, in the volume and prints on the walls. And we'll have some of the students who've read for our audio guide, they're reciting poetry in person as well to give visitors that experience. The brochure for this show has a land acknowledgement statement. Jeffrey, would you feel comfortable reading that? Sure. At the Georgia Museum of Art, we recognize our role as settlers and guests in Northeast Georgia. The University of Georgia and surrounding region is the ancestral homeland of Muscogean-speaking peoples and Cherokee groups, as well as many other indigenous caretakers. They were the original stewards of this land and water since time immemorial and continue to retain their ancestral connection to the land of Georgia. We value the enduring influence of the vibrant, diverse, and contemporary cultures of indigenous peoples. We are conscious of the role in colonization that museums have played, and we choose to hold ourselves accountable to appropriate conversation, representation, connection, and education to facilitate a space of measurable change. Carl Davis, the executive director of Crow's Shadow Institute of the Arts, and Jeffrey Richmond Mall, curator of Collective Impressions, Modern Native American Printmakers. The exhibition is on view now through January 30th at the Georgia Museum of Art, located on the UGA campus in Athens. In a moment, we'll hear how Oakland Cemetery is capturing the spirit on film. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. (laughs) 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Loris Wrights. It's great to have you along. Well, Halloween 2021 has come and gone, and with it went your chance to participate in Oakland Cemetery's annual Capturing the Spirit of Oakland Halloween Tour. But if you missed it, fear not. Last fall, when the pandemic had all event organizers questioning their plans, Oakland Cemetery put out a film version of the tour. When the movie was released, special events and volunteer manager Mary Fernandez and acting film director Matt Huff joined me via Zoom. Fernandez started our conversation explaining why they decided to make the film. Well, we decided fairly early on that we were going to offer a filmed version of the Capturing the Spirit tours. Accessibility is very important to the Historic Oakland Foundation. Uh, And so we knew that regardless of whether or not we were going to be able to hold the event in person, that there would be those who wouldn't feel comfortable coming on the site. Uh, And so filming the tours was our way of being able to share them as widely as possible. I think it's very effective. The Spirit of Oakland is narrated by Abby Howard, who was quite a controversial figure. She is buried in the historic cemetery. What can you tell us about her notoriety? Abby Howard was a notorious 19th century madam here in Atlanta. And she's a bit of a beloved resident among our volunteers uh, because they were able through the tours to raise funds to provide her with a headstone. She previously uh, did not have a grave marker at her grave site. And so honoring this tradition of volunteer involvement within capturing the spirit of Oakland, we chose her to be the guide. And in a funny way, Abby Howard, while notorious in some respects, uh, she is very representative of Atlanta. She was a businesswoman in a boom town. Uh, She had an entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, And like all of our residents, there's some good and some bad to her story. I was going to say, and she is the ultimate host, so uh, how perfect for her to take us on on the tour. This is true. Is is it true that she inspired the character of Belle Watling in Gone with the Wind? 
It's believed to be the case, yes. Okay. Well, then, all the more reason she enjoys pride of place on the tours. Matt, how did you decide which residents to feature in the film? Well, uh, Mary decides that, actually, in the Oakland staff. So, Mary, why don't you talk about how the characters are, are selected? We select which residents to highlight and to emphasize each year uh, based on a number of different factors. Um, and there is a great deal of volunteer involvement in that process. There's 70,000 people buried at Oakland and 70,000 different stories. And we come across these stories in different ways, whether it's one of our history buffs coming to us and saying, you won't believe what I just learned, or if it's something that the staff comes across in our own research, uh, when we're researching different themes and different topics. Sometimes the stories are brought forward uh, by descendants as well. Watching the film, listening to the stories, brings out how much these Oakland Cemetery tours really are about local history. And I was wondering how you gather the information about these residents to construct the stories. The wonderful thing about Oakland is that it serves as a mirror to the city of Atlanta. Um, you know, its residents reflect the diversity of Atlanta, its residents reflect its full history. The landscape of Atlanta can change, buildings can be torn down, built over, uh, but Oakland is constant in a sense. We have who is buried there and that doesn't usually change. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so Oakland is able to show a fuller story than almost anywhere else in the city, uh, the good, the bad, the ugly. Uh, and so we look for residents that also reflect this history, the diversity of stories, the many different narratives and the many different ways that you can understand how our city came to be. So the Oakland staff does as much research as they can on, on the residents. Um, some of them have a lot of things written about them and others have very little. And uh, that research is given to our playwrights, uh, who I have to tip my hats to, uh, Patricia Henrice and Amina McIntyre. And they gather, uh, they take the research and begin to create a, a five and a half or so minute monologue based upon that research, trying to capture not only the facts of that person's life, but sort of a, an essence of that resident that uh, they create through their words. And sometimes they have a lot to go on and sometimes they have to use their imagination to really get a full picture of, of the character or the resident. I refer to them as characters, of course, because I'm a theater director, but they are, <laughs> they are residents. Now, Gilbert Ezzard is one of the Oakland residents who talks about being enslaved and living a double life. By day, he was a barber for Judge William Ezzard, and by night, he says he could be his true self. What was he referring to? So for Guilford Ezzard's script, and, and Guilford Ezzard is certainly not a name that many people in Atlanta would know uh, because of the nature of his story, having been enslaved, although he did live to see emancipation, we explore the concept of the Hush Harbor or the Brush Harbor. It has many different names, uh, which were secret gatherings of the enslaved during the time of slavery in which they were able to practice religious ceremonies, have weddings and marriages and 
share community with one another. And so the exploration of that double life really expands upon what the general public may or may not know about slavery and the situations of people who are enslaved, particularly in Atlanta, which was very much a city built upon slavery and the institution of slavery through the surrounding plantations as well as the railroads. And so his story is so important to highlight because it almost addresses the erasures of how we've told the story of Atlanta's founding. And it's incredibly, incredibly moving. It is. Matt, the story of Gilbert Ezzard really felt like the dramatic climax of the film for me. What was it like to direct this actor? Mm, well, uh, Jason Lauder, who's the actor who plays uh, Guilford, just did a brilliant and really powerful job expressing this this resident. It was definitely a collaboration. And I think with Jason's performance, I think for him, it was really getting in touch with that this person existed and they're buried there. And for him, just meditating on that was extremely powerful. You know, with all of the residents we go through and we talk about the idea that they lived as real people and every experience that they're referring to, they they lived and they therefore they have thoughts and feelings about everything they're talking about. A lot of the performers that are volunteers at Oakland give tours and they speak about Oakland from a tour guide perspective. But when they become the resident, they have to speak about the resident as a first person, as if they lived it. So with Jason, it was the same process as with the other performers. It's just going through and really personalizing everything and imagining that they live that life and how can we express that sense uh, to our audience. So it feels like you're, you're watching the resident and not necessarily an actor perform the resident. Yeah. The restoration of the African-American grounds in Oakland was completed. Would you talk a bit about that? So the restoration of the historic African-American burial grounds actually started through capturing the spirit of Oakland, through fundraising directly by the actors. They were the ones that were bringing the stories to life and then encouraging the audience to donate and help support Oakland's mission to preserve, restore, enhance, and share Oakland Cemetery. And so the preservation of Oakland is deeply connected to capturing the spirit of Oakland. It's our largest fundraiser. We've been able to accomplish some pretty incredible feats of preservation through its fundraising. And again, going back to the theme of accessibility, the film increases the accessibility of, of our stories. Not only will it continue to serve as a fundraiser for Oakland, uh, but it'll also allow us to share our stories even farther than we have previously. The female characters in the film talk about the limitations women face during their lifetimes. Women who wanted to have a profession during their own era. Would you tell us about the female characters, the women residents featured in the film beyond Abby Howard? The women that are featured in this year's Capturing the Spirit of Oakland tour, their stories are both individual and also universal. So they show that 
women have always led complex lives uh, in which they've had concerns about their families and their careers and current events. And you can see that in these historic stories. There's a complexity to women in women's history that hasn't always been told. By sharing these particular stories, we're able to contribute to our larger understanding of women's role in, in the foundation of Atlanta and the foundation of our country. In the film, Abby Howard talks about Potter's Field. What is that section of the cemetery? Potter's Field is the Popper's burial ground at Oakland Cemetery. So uh, if you were too poor to afford a burial plot, or perhaps you were an unknown person that died in Atlanta, you would be buried in this particular section of the cemetery. Although there have been some kind of archaeological studies that have shown that there are some would appear to be middle-class coffins in Potter's Field. So because the cemetery sold out in 1884, it's possible that someone who wanted to be buried in Oakland may have chosen Potter's Field as an option to get into the gates, even if they didn't have a family lot. In the film, we hear about the Mexican legend of death. First, would you explain what that means? One of the traditional understandings of death within the Mexican culture, and this is an understanding of death that predates uh, Spanish colonialism even, uh, is that a person experiences three deaths. Their first death is when their heart stops beating and they cease to be alive. Uh, Their second death is when they are buried in the ground. And their third death is when friends and family no longer speak their name. Uh, And so the saying at Oakland goes that, you know, we hope that we can prevent this third death from happening to any of our residents, that we will continuously uh, tell the stories of our residents, uncover stories that deserve to be told, and share the stories that are historically important that may be unknown or underrepresented. And doing doing so via the live performance and the film performance is just such a powerful way to learn about history. And there is this sense of just bringing the past very much into the present. When you're when you're watching the video, it's just quite magical, and you really feel this connection through time, uh, and you feel a part of Atlanta in a way that connects you with all of the great people that made up this city. Um, and their legacy here, whether it's a something they established that's still around or just their presence and their energy helped influence our city in, in ways that still resonate today. So it's just such a, a neat way to understand how Atlanta became the wonderful city that it is. Acting film director Matt Huff and Oakland Cemetery's Mary Fernandez you can still watch Capturing the Spirit of Oakland via Oakland's website, oaklandcemetery.com. Toward the end of the interview, you may recall Matt Huff mentioning the Mexican legend of death. Coming up, we'll explore that legend further with Javier Diaz de Leon. Mexico's Consul General in Atlanta. You are tuned to WABE Atlanta.
This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Today marks the celebration of Dia de los Muertos, or Day of the Dead. This Aztec-originated celebration honors ancestors and loved ones who've passed away. It's a joyful celebration uniting the living with the dead. To learn more, let's listen back to my interview with Javier Diaz de Leon, the Consul General of Mexico in Atlanta. Here, Diaz de Leon begins by explaining the long history behind Dia de los Muertos. It is, of course, something that has, of course, it's been present in Mexican culture and in Mexican uh, tradition for, for centuries. Of course, it, it comes even way before uh, Europeans uh, arrived in the sh- at the shores of Mexico 500 years ago. So, I mean, it is something that comes from pre-Hispanic uh, traditions, mostly from the center of Mexico. And uh, one of the things that we always uh, reinforce uh, is that uh, this this is tradition, this is tradition from pre-Hispanic cultures uh, in central Mexico that have a lot to do with, of course, honoring an- ancestors and, uh, and and getting close to ancestors during a certain part of the uh, of, of their yearly celebration, particularly on the eve of November 1st. And the tradition entails basically by pre-Hispanic cultures set, setting up uh, a tribute to the those who have passed away putting at altars or probably, you know, spending the night at the tombs where ancestors have been buried and welcoming the spirits of our ancestors for a night, that night that predates the, the Day of the Dead. And of course, that's why these cultures have, you know, things that are identified with that person of our family that we are honoring or we are receiving that night. So food, things that they liked during the time they were among us, and all of that is central part. So it's a pre-Hispanic tradition that, of course, got mixed with European elements after the Mexican, uh, the conquest of Mexico from Spain. And now it has evolved so many ways. And, uh, and we are very proud that it's being, you know, it is now considered by UNESCO a world cultural patrimony. Uh, and I think it, it is a wonderful thing because this is not about praising death or, you know, doing anything scary. So it's a totally contrary. It's a celebration, and it's a family celebration. Yes, it's called the Day of the Dead, but it is really a celebration of life and, and very joyous. The celebration takes place on two days, November 1st, which is observed as All Saints Day on the Christian calendar, and November 2nd. Why is it stretched over two days? It has to do with the, with a religious calendar, of course, particularly the Catholic calendar that, of course, Mexico adopted as a part of our syncretism, as part of our mixed culture that comes from the pre-Hispanic and now and the European assimilation in Mexico. So, of course, uh, the Catholic elements of the, of the, of the calendar involves, like you very well say, All Saints Day, and, uh, and on November 2nd is, you know, the, the Day of the Dead. And that is the time when all of this is a very strong part of the celebrations in Mexico. Hmm. You mentioned some special foods. What are some of those foods? And I was hoping you'd talk about the role of candy and sweets in the celebrations. 
Well, yeah, I mean, of course, food is almost is a central part of everything that we do in our tradition in Mexico. And, and that has a lot to do, of course, with very specific foods or very specific regions in Mexico. Mexico is a multicultural country and, uh, and we have several different cultures and several, several different ethnicities in our country with very specific food traditions. But this is mostly from the center of Mexico. Mistecas, what are the uh, Otomíes, what are, what, are, what are some of the regions that operate in central Mexico. Food like, uh, of course, there's a lot of sweets that are uh, derived from that. Uh, a very common thing that you see in Mexico and central Mexico at this time of year are uh, skulls made out of sugar. And, uh, and the tradition is that they were, when I was little, you could see those in bakeries, in, in places where you buy bread. And, and, and there you will see the, the, the sugar skulls. And you could buy your sugar skull with your name on it. And that is something we all wanted. I wanted my, my skull with Javier on top of the head, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and that's something that is part of, that we know and we see all around us when we're growing up in Mexico. And the second thing, very important, of course, is the, 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 the bread. The bread of the dead, the, the, which is the very traditional bread that is cooked and prepared in Mexico in this time of year, I love it. Uh, I'll tell you a quick. I always tell. I always think about this quick uh, uh, story that pertains my family. When my when my, my my daughter was really young, we were living at that time in uh, Northern Jersey because I was working at the consulate in New York, and uh, and we were called upon by teachers at her elementary school because they were concerned because my daughter had brought this strange bread into school that she was calling it a bread of the dead and, <laughs> and that and they were a little concerned so what, what does that mean she says she has bread of is it made of dead people or what I, I thought that was so funny well or rather ignorant i don't know but it strikes me as fascinating that when you spoke about wanting a sugar skull with your name on it that this tradition of honoring the dead really is showing children not to be frightened of death, that this is the next stage of life, I guess, isn't it? Um, certainly, of course. Of course. Uh, and, and the thing is that uh, more than thinking or, or focusing on, the, on death itself, is focusing on the celebration of those who came before us, particularly our ancestors, those who we love and we, you know, miss so much and who have passed away. And the day of the death celebration and the altar is a way that we reconnect with them, that we, you know, uh, in our minds, we are together with them again. And it's far from a sad or a scary moment. It's a celebration. What does that bread taste like? Oh, I love it. It's kind of a, it's, it's, it's a bread that, that, has a, that has some very specific uh, comino and spices, but it's, it's, it's delicious. It has mostly, a, usually a, a sugar-coated exterior. And in the inside, of course, it's, uh, it's made with a lot of milk and uh, it's kind of vanilla tasting. But uh, I love it. I, I'll make sure to get, to, get, get you some, Lois. Scrumptious sounding. Javier, will you tell us, please, about La Calavera Catrina? one of the most recognizable symbols of Dia de los Muertos. The Catrina is an iconic uh, symbol of, uh, of all this, you know, time of the year in Mexico. It's a lady with a skull face dressed in very elegant attire from the early 20th, very, very early 20th century. Uh, its history comes from a famous 
a sketcher in Mexico back then, uh, way back then, almost more, more than 100 years ago. His name is Jose Guadalupe Posadas. And he was, uh, he worked at a newspaper in central Mexico in the city of Aguascalientes. And he was a social commentary and uh, more like a kind of a, what nowadays is a political cartoonist. And he was making uh, some, uh, let's say, social criticism of people in, in uh, middle higher class in Mexico who rejected their Mexican culture and wanted to be more like, appear more like European. And he started describing them and portraying them uh, dressed in these very elegant fashions, but with a skull face. Uh, so that's where it comes from originally. Now it became, it became really a, a phenomenon because of Diego Rivera. Uh, uh, Diego Rivera took this, uh, this image, this, this, this very you know, iconic image that was created by Jose Guadalupe Posadas, and he painted it central in one of, one of his most famous murals that is located in Mexico City, uh, which, which is uh, about a, a summer afternoon at the Alameda, which is a central park in Mexico. And he portrays in that mural some of the most important personalities in early 20th century Mexico. And central, right in the center of, of Diego Rivera's mural is La Catrina. She's right there in the center. Uh, uh, and that is probably most uh, most scholars think that it was it was that that made it uh, you know uh, become the phenomenon it is now. See why we need artists. Artists are storytellers. They're historians. They're keepers of the culture. Javier, Hispanic and Latinx communities have been hit hard by COVID nineteen. Do you think that will lend different meaning or added significance to the Day of the Dead? I am, I am, unfortunately, I am pretty sure that uh, the answer is yes, Lois. You're totally on point. Uh, Latino, Hispanic immigrant community has been particularly impacted by their pandemic. Uh, and their, the statistics show that they are overrepresented in, in most, of, in most uh, statistics regarding contagion and, and deaths proportionally, of course, with the total population. And that has a lot to do with so many factors, but basically a lot of the structural reasons why they have less access to, to services, they have less access to timely information about prevention. And, uh, and uh, that is something that we are working so closely with so many organizations here in the region uh, to try to reverse. Uh, it's a tremendous effort. And I'm sure that, uh, and we all actually already know because we're doing several events regarding, for example, uh, uh, people sending us photos of their altars that they do at home for their deceased, etc. We are seeing so many of those that are connected to family members that have been uh, victims of this pandemic. Oh, can you tell us something about the altars, the tradition of the altars? And is there a particular style that's been common through the ages? Yeah, I mean, the altar is a central part. Like I was saying at the beginning, it comes... It comes basically from the from the original tradition of indigenous cultures spending the night in the uh, next to the graves or, or where where the families rest, and, uh, and that it, it is evolved has evolved throughout the centuries for mostly people uh, spending the night first at cemeteries and then doing at home what they would have done if they were spending the night at a cemetery, which is placing in the uh, on on top of the tomb things that are related to the person that has passed away. So instead of doing that at the cemetery, altar is something that you do at home. 
uh, but with the same element, you know, it's a connection. It's a connection to the deceased, to our, our loved one who has passed away. And ha there are a lot of elements into that, of course, like, like we were saying before, food, certain very specific foods. Some people even put, for example, tequila or mezcal or oh my. drink uh, on the altar. Of course, a photograph or some of some image of the of the person who has passed away personal uh, uh, property personal uh, things pertaining to that even like clothes or shoes things are like that are often in there so it's it, it takes a lot of a lo lot of creativity there are certain elements that have to do with the order or the placement that has to 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 take place it's not it's not it's not something uh, totally chaotic or you know that happens uh, with that certain order, there are there's a certain order of where the food goes, where the image goes, and uh, and people who, who are very into tra the tradition in Mexico know how to do this, and uh, and there's a lot of uh, norms in terms of, in terms of how to build how to properly build your altar, and we have here at the Mexican consulate that we have built with uh, a lot of friends and particularly from uh, a digital radio station called Radio Mojarra, which is a very group of fun people and it's actually sponsored by a funeral home here in Atlanta oh. and we dedicated this to two wonderful people who passed away the wonderful Teodoro Maus one of my predecessors and he was consul general of Mexico here for many years and we also are, are honoring a, a co-worker a wonderful lady called Esperanza Tapia she worked here at the consulate for over 30 years Lois and we are honoring her at Teodoro Maus here at the, at the consulate so anybody who wants to see you know what is this, you know, altars about, please feel free to come and, and, and see this Malta that I think is beautiful. Very meaningful. Why do you think Americans wrongly equate Day of the Dead with Halloween? I mean, it seems they are nothing alike. I think it's a trans. I personally think it's a transition that I, I think I've, I've been 20 years in the United States, Lois, and uh, I mean, working in different consulates and offices in the United States as a diplomat. I've seen an evolution in this past 20 years. I think there's been a very important, interesting evolution uh, uh, and a greater awareness of what this is about. And I would, I think it's natural that at the beginning, since we, since this festival and this event takes place exactly at the same time, and there's, of course, there's reasons for that. It's not a coincidence. Because it has, it has to do with a lot more, with a lot of things going on with the calendar and the, the mixture, like I was saying, between European and, and uh, pre-Hispanic cultures in, in the Americas. But uh, it's, I think it's natural at certain moments when you see some of the things to mix them and to think that this is Mexican Halloween, which like I have, I have seen it being referred to in the past. I mean, I think throughout the years, there is a greater and greater awareness of the particularities of the Day of the Dead. And, uh, and particularly its happy substance and these positive uh, elements that I think divide, divide it from the, from the other tradition. And I think the other tradition has wonderful elements and it's also a lot of fun. I'm not saying that the other one is not. This is a different, this is family. This is, and a celebration of life indeed. Exactly. I think what you say about a revolution in the understanding you've observed over all these years really connotes progress. This is a good thing. I totally agree. I totally agree. I think we are more and more uh, closer together. We are two nations that are, uh, you know, we share not only geography and trade and all that, we share people, we share families, millions of them. 
every year, every decade, we have a stronger and stronger awareness and understanding about each other. And I, I am, and I have seen that go happen in the United States through my career in different parts of the United States. And I am very excited that, you know, in a place like Atlanta embraces Day of the Dead. Javier Diaz de Leon is the Consul General of Mexico in Atlanta. You can listen to that entire interview on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Julius Caesar is coming to the Atlanta Opera. We'll visit with artistic director Tomers Vuloon and soprano Jasmine Habersham. City Light senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights, or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram, where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.